Hi, um, my name is Lynn Queen, and I live here in Batavia, and I also work at Mercy Housing, and I also attend Chapel Street Church. I have a friend that I was on leadership with for Moms Together, and she invited me to help with a fundraiser for, to raise money for Mercy Housing. And I had never heard of Mercy Housing, but of course my heart just said, yes, I will help you with what you need. And I was intrigued to learn that they're my neighbors and that they need so much help. So I have three children that are in the same school district as many of these children. And I have a son who is very quiet, my youngest, and he would be asking for two sandwiches, two bags of chips, two apples, and I thought, he can't be eating all that. Finally one day I asked him, what are you doing with all this food? And he said, there's some kids that don't have lunches and I want to share mine with them. And that really touched my heart and I thought, who are these children that he's talking about? And my daughter said that there was a boy that needed clothing. He's wearing the same thing every day. And I, I just went on with my day and didn't think much about it. And I thought, well, let's pray about it. How can we help people? And when I came that day, I saw two of the children that I knew that my children were talking about. And I thought, there's a way I could serve them. I need to do this. So I visited and met with the property manager because I just felt this calling to see how I could help and serve here and they offered a job and I started working shortly after. Um, I've been here three and a half years. The last time Chapel Street was here was 2019 and we had a wonderful turnout. They were able to create a second raised garden for us which we have people that have never grown food before. We have children that have never seen how food was grown. So Chapel Street built those shelves here for us. The food pantry has shelves and we've been able to serve so many families every month from just having shelving units on the walls so that we could expand that food pantry. Now it's a full grown pantry for those who don't drive because we have many seniors and um, people who don't have a car so they're able to um, utilize our pantry and help them get through the month. So Chapel Street today for their day of serving is working on organizing our art room. They're also working on our picnic tables which we have many people that um, do love to sit outside and they've never been stained so they're rough and many splinters, lots of tears. So I have a list on my phone and I always have my phone with me and I make a list of things I see or residents needs and sometimes I just want to scream it from the rooftops. I need help with this. So um, when we were gathered today I just asked if anyone knew anything about computers and someone stepped right up. Oh my gosh I see five on! Oh wow! Are you kidding? Oh my gosh! Okay I'm gonna hug you. I don't care. I'm gonna hug you. I'm so grateful to have that opportunity to have the kids come back in the fall and say, oh, I can use the computers now. I think working here at Mercy Housing has strengthened my relationship with God in that I am his servant. I am full of joy. And when people say I'm passionate, I'm honored because I know it's my passion for God that gives me that strength and grace and courage to do what I do. And I just feel like that's our calling is to help one another and serve one another. So I just pray every day that God will give me those right words or actions to take to, to serve the residents here who are my neighbors.
Well, if you've been around Chapel Street for any length of time, you know that we as a whole church, all four campuses, want to be the kind of church that's not just for those of us who are inside the walls, already in the family, but a church that's for those who are outside the walls, who are not yet in God's family, and serving our neighbors is one of the ways we do that, so great, great to see that video. And by the way, I'm Pastor Brian, I came here, down here from South Street a few minutes ago, and as I walked into the lobby, I saw Pastor Joe Scavato sitting out there, and he said, he saw me walk in, he goes, is it Andrew preaching today? And I went, is he? I'm supposed to... <laughs> So I told him that if, if, if we're going to have to arm wrestle to see who gets to preach today. So I don't know who you think would win the arm wrestling match. You, you don't have to say. But. We don't want to humiliate <laughs> <laughs> So uh, some of you might know that um, I grew up along with my brother Joe, who's a pastor in Ohio, uh, loving to play sports. He, he and I both eventually played basketball in high school on into college. In fact, my brother's uh, high school team, the Boone High School Braves, in Orlando, Florida, won the state championship in Florida in 1977. Now, I'm going to tell a little bit of that story uh, today because it's a fun one. It was his senior year, uh, and they ha- had a good team, but they were not expected even to win their conference championship, let alone go all the way to state. But they kind of came together at the right time and went on a really exciting run. They won their conference championship, and then and as underdogs in every game, won four straight games in the state playoffs to make it all the way to the state finals. They were even bigger underdogs in the final game. One of the local newspapers wrote that they looked like a junior high team against this other team that was the number one team in the state, very talented team. But in that state final game, they played like the perfect game. Uh, They were leading by like 15 points at halftime. We couldn't believe it. This dream was going to come true. But then in the second half, this other team that was very talented sort of began to to get their rhythm and started to make baskets and the lead began to shrink. By the end of the third quarter, it was down to like eight or nine points and you're just feeling the game start to slip away. Uh, It was about two minutes to go in the game. My brother's team's lead was down to about three points and it felt like it was was all inevitably going to go away. And then uh, disaster happened. My brother, who was the captain of the team and the point guard of the team, got his fifth foul and fouled out of the game with about a minute to go in the state championship game up by two points. Uh, I mean, what was the coach going to do? He was the leader of the team. We were all going, oh, no, it's all going to, and we were, what's the, and he walked down the bench to pick out the player to replace my brother in the game, and he walked all the way down to the end of the bench, and he picked Kurt Stasky, and we were all going, no, not Kurt. Why would you put Kurt? And now we didn't say it out loud because his parents were somewhere there, but Kurt was like a, this little five, six scrawny left-handed kid. He had long sideburns, and he was like a third team guy. Uh, he, in fact, he was so far down on the depth chart that when they, my brother told me when they practiced first team guys against second team guys, he wouldn't even get into practice. He had to stay on the side of the court because he was, he was third team. And he would spend most of practices all year long shooting free throws on a side basket. That's all they let Kurt do. But here he's going into the state championship game with one minute to go, down two points, replacing the captain of the team. We were like, oh, this game's lost. Well, here's the thing. Uh, my brother, even though a good player, was not a great free throw shooter. And what, that, what the other coach did, as soon as Kurt went in the game, like any good coach would say, hey, foul that guy. We're down to foul the new kid. Foul that new kid, which they did. But what that coach did not know was what Kurt Stasky spent the whole year doing on the side of the floor <laughs> shooting free throws. And that little kid came in off the bench, and in the last minute of that game, he made four straight free throws and iced the state championship game and became the unlikely hero. In fact, I emailed, I texted my brother early this morning, he's in Ohio, and said, remind me of that kid's name that made those free throws. I had his name, as, I thought it was Ray. He goes, no, he said, Kurt Stasky, and then he, then he typed in, 
awesome story because he knew I was going to tell the story. Unlikely heroes. Now, we're in the next to last part of a summer-long series. Next week, we'll wrap it up uh, uh, from Hebrews chapter 11. It's really about unlikely heroes. The author has been looking back at men and women of the Old Testament, uh, looking at the power of faith, the role of faith in their lives, as a way of encouraging these young Jewish background believers who were struggling with, with their faith. Last week, we looked at the very unlikely story of Rahab, uh, the prostitute of Jericho. Andrew brought that, that message here, uh, who put her faith and her life in the hands of the God of Israel, and she was saved. Now we come to the very end of the chapter, and the author is starting to sort of summarize all he's been talking about. So I'm going to read for you, and you can look on the screens, um, Hebrews 11, beginning of verse 32, all the way to verse 40. So follow along as I read. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. It sounds like a preacher getting to the end of a sermon. I don't have time to tell you everything, but just stick with me here. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Okay, we're going to look at three things today about faith. Faith that conquers, faith that suffers, and faith that is made perfect. First, faith that conquers. Years ago, uh, we had a visiting pastor uh, here at church. We just had one campus in those days up at South Street. His name was uh, Joseph Son. He was from Romania, and he came to preach at our church. Uh, at that time, he, uh, previously, he had been a leader in the Romanian church in the late 70s under the brutal communist regime of a dictator named Nicolae Ceausescu. You might remember that from, from your history studies. Uh, Pastor Son uh, had been arrested, uh, interrogated a number of times, and despite threats on his life, uh, because he was seen as an enemy of the state, uh, he kept on preaching the gospel. And this is from what he shared with us that day uh, some 25, 28 years ago. He said at one point the secret police arrested him and threatened him saying, Dr. Sohn, don't you know we have the power to shoot you right now and no one will know what happened to you because we regard you as an enemy of state. You must stop preaching in your church. And this is what Pastor Sohn said. He said, yes, I know you have the power to shoot me. But with all due respect, let me explain to you how that will work. He said, your greatest weapon is killing. My greatest weapon is dying. My sermon tapes have been spread all over this country, and if you kill me, you will sprinkle those tapes with my blood, and I will speak ten times louder in death than I ever have in life. In fact, I will conquer this country for Christ if you kill me. With all due respect, that's how that will work. They sent him away. A couple weeks later, he was arrested again. This time, the, the head of the secret police in that country said to him, Dr. Sohn, we know your plan to become a martyr. We are not so foolish as to give you what you want. So they exiled him to America. He came here in 1981 and stayed here and continued to preach, sending tapes to Romania. And if you remember, in 1989, after the arrest of another dissident pastor, whose name was Laszlo Tokish, 
the whole country revolted. And Nikolai Ceausescu was toppled, thrown down, his regime crumbled, and faith, in a large part, conquered a communist dictator and his entire regime. Verse 32 says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered. Now, let me jump ahead here. We see two things, I think, in this little passage. First, uh, God uses the faith of flawed people. God uses the faith even of flawed people. The author here gives us six names. All of them come out of the Old Testament, most out of the book of Judges. Uh, They're very familiar names to the people who were first reading this letter, the Hebrew people. They knew the stories backward and forward. Not so familiar to us. Let me just give you a snapshot of each one of these characters that you may or may not recognize. First, Gideon. Gideon's story comes to us in Judges chapter 6, and we're told that the people of Israel sinned in the eyes of the Lord and that they were being uh, terrorized by an enemy people group called the Midianites. In fact, when the angel of the Lord comes to call Gideon into leadership, Gideon is hiding from the Midianites in fear. And the angel of the Lord says to him, uh, uh, Hail, mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon says, in effect, who, who, me? You're talking to me? And then he questions. He says, if God is with us, then why is all this happening to us? So he questions God Almighty the first time he hears from God. Then God then speaks to him and says, Go in the strength you have. Have I not called you? And that's not enough for Gideon. He says, you got the wrong guy. I mean, I come from the least family in, my, in, in Israel, and I'm the least in my family. I'm like a total loser, God. You're calling me. God says, I will be with you. I will strike down the Midianites for you. And that's not even enough. Gideon says, well, then, sh- then show me a sign. Just give me a sign. In fact, he asks for several signs. And my point is that Gideon at this point in his life was not exactly a pillar of courage and faith. But eventually, he obeys and leads a great victory. Barak is next. Comes his stories in Judges 4 and 5. Now, he's called by a female prophet named Deborah, who we're told was leading Israel at that time. And Deborah calls Barak to take 10,000 men and go fight against an enemy army led by a guy named Sisera. But Barak balks at this. In fact, he refuses to go on this assignment unless Deborah promises to go with him. Kind of embarrassing for a warrior to say, well, he wants the lady to go with him to fight this guy because he's kind of scared. Okay? So Deborah goes. But the victory, and the victory is accomplished, but the Bible tells us the honor then goes to someone else other than Barak. It goes to another woman named Jael. And if you remember the story, because Jael is the one who killed Sisera by driving a tent peg through his head while he slept. One of the kind of grisly images of the Old Testament. Samson. You may have heard of Samson. His story is in Judges 13 through 16. Samson's called by God to lead his people. But Samson had all kinds of personal issues. He had problems with women. He had impulse control problems. He had anger problems. But at the very end of his life, in one last act of faith, he defeated the Philistines. Then we come to Jephthah. How many did your study up on Jephthah this week? Anybody? <laughs> Not Jethro. That's Beverly Hillbillies. There's actually a Jethro in the Bible too, but Jephthah. Here's Jephthah. Uh, his story is told in Judges 11. We're told he's a mighty warrior. Uh, he's going into a great battle against a group called the Ammonites. But he makes a rash and unwise vow before God before the battle. He says, if, I, if we win this battle, if I win this battle, I promise, I vow to offer as a blood sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house after the battle. Not a real smart thing to say, but that's what he said. And he wins the battle, comes home, and the first thing that comes out of his house is not a goat or a pig. 
It's his daughter. Oops, not the smartest guy, right? Not a wise thing. Samuel. Samuel led Israel faithfully for many, many years, but Samuel, at the end of his life, appointed his two sons to lead Israel, and both of them were corrupt and greedy, we're told. King David, amazing man, became a mighty warrior, killed Goliath on the battlefield, became the greatest king in Israel, but what he's remembered for, in part, is his great sin with a woman named Bathsheba. Now, all this simply to say is they're all heroes of faith, but they were flawed people, unlikely heroes of faith. They're celebrated here not because their faith was perfect, not because they were perfect, not because they did amazing things, but because in some way, at some time, despite their mistakes, despite their flaws, they believed God and they obeyed God. Here's a question for us today. Have you ever had sort of quietly to yourself a thought like this? Well, you know, I, I don't really know that God could use me and my faith for anything because I'm, I'm kind of a nobody. My faith, in fact, not even that strong. I've made a lot of mistakes. Maybe he really can't do anything with me. I think at some time or another we all have fleeting thoughts like that. But this list right here tells us something different. Hebrews 11 is telling us that the power of our faith is not anchored in how much faith we can muster up. The power of faith is not in the strength of my faith. It's in the strength of the one in whom I put my faith. Here's the way I've seen it said. You don't have to be, a perfect, you don't have to be perfect to be a hero in God's hall of faith. Or maybe say it like this. Even weak faith, even imperfect faith is better than unbelief. God uses the faith of flawed people. The second thing we see in this list is that faith also conquers. Faith brings victory. It says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. So just as Pastor Son overcame persecution and threat to help overthrow an entire communist regime... Here the author gives a whole bunch of examples, without giving any names, of victories accomplished by faith. Who through faith conquered kingdoms. Maybe you think of Joshua and the battle of Jericho, marching around the city and and driving out the Canaanites, taking the promised land. Who stopped the mouths of lions. Who do you think when I say stop the mouths of lions? We think of Daniel and the story of when he's thrown to the lion's den and those lions don't even touch him who quenched the power of fire. In Daniel chapter 3, we think of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown into the fiery furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar because they did not bow down to the great golden idol he set up. And we read this story in Daniel 3. Listen to this story. It's one of my favorites. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. See, that's faith. And that's a faith that conquers. But the author continues. Who escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of weakness. He's probably thinking of Samson here, made strong out of weakness. But let me come back to that in just a moment. Became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Gideon and all the other uh, warriors of the book of Judges. And then women received back their dead by resurrection. Does that surprise you? Did you know there was resurrection in the Old Testament? I read that this week and I was like, wait a second. I, 
I had to go back and find the stories because I had sort of forgotten. Two little stories tucked away in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 17, the prophet Elisha is staying with a, a widow and her son dies. And, she, and Elijah lies down on this boy and cries out to the God of heaven and he's restored to life. Very similar story in 2 Kings 4 when Elisha, another prophet, and a Shunammite widow, her son dies. He does the same thing. Called out to God, that boy is raised back to life. So resurrection's in the Old Testament. Who knew? These were all extraordinary, miraculous victories of faith. A faith that conquers. Now, I've never uh, been threatened by uh, swords or fire or a lion. Most of you have not either. I've never seen a resurrection happen. I don't know. I don't know what that would be like. But go back to that little phrase. He says, out of weakness, they were made strong. Weakness. That's something I know something about. My guess is that you know something about what it feels like to be weak as well. Weak in faith, weak in your life experience. Something happens, you face a time of struggle, a time of pain, illness, fear, whatever it is. When you feel like you're hanging on the faith by your fingernails, you just can't muster up hard enough faith even to go to church or to pray. You feel like a nobody, nothing like a hero. That's why Paul wrote, writes to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says, but he, the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So the summary of this point is that the writer of Hebrews is telling us that God uses the faith of flawed people, that he works in and through even our weaknesses to accomplish his purposes in us and in the world. So that's the first point, faith that conquers. Second thing we see here is a faith that suffers. A faith that suffers. Some 25 years ago or so, I was part of a team from this church that visited... um, uh, what we called our sister church in Russia at the time. It was called Transfiguration Baptist Church in Samara, Russia, about 400 miles southeast of Moscow, a picture of the church we visited. Uh, their pastor was a wonderful man named Pastor Viktor Ryagazov, and he invited me to preach in his church on Sunday morning. And before the service that morning, he took me into a, a small office kind of behind uh, the, the worship area, kind of like a boardroom. And he wanted to introduce me, he said, to his elders. So I walked in just minutes before the service, and there sitting around this long table were about 10 old Russian men, all of them at least 80, uh, grizzled faces, hunched over, um, steely blue eyes. They were all just looking at me. So he introduced me as the guest pastor from America who was going to preach that day, and they all just nodded at me. And then he went around the table and introduced them by name, and then he added what they had suffered for the sake of Christ in their lives. That was like their introduction. It went like this. He'd say, Pastor Brian, this is Brother Dimitri. He spent 20 years in a labor camp in the Gulag because of his faith in Jesus. This is Brother Vladimir. He was arrested and lost his job and his home because he he shared Christ with his neighbor. This is Brother Boris. All his children were expelled from school and never could go back again because of his faith. And it hit me. He went around the whole table. And the qualification of each one of these old men, these elders, was what they had suffered. And I thought to myself, you want me to preach to them? I never felt so unqualified in my life. Verse 35 says, some were tortured. 
refusing to step release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves and the earth. You, if you're tracking, you're like, whoa, 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 that went south in a hurry, from like conquering kingdoms and defeating lions and swords to, to suffering, to mocking and torture and chains being sawn in two? What's being said here? Who are these people that aren't named? And we don't know with certainty because names aren't given, but there are some ancient traditions that say it was the prophet Isaiah who at the end of his life was sawn in two by enemies. And interestingly, there's a word tucked away in here that is untranslated in our English. And it's a Greek word, uh, perazzo, which can be translated as test or tempt, that they were tested and tempted. And there's some dispute about why that word is not translated here, but I went back and found it. But I'll get back to it in just a minute. In 2 Chronicles, we're told that a guy named Zechariah was stoned to death for preaching that God was going to judge all sin someday. And in Jeremiah 26, another guy named Uriah was killed by the sword for doing the same thing. So these things really happened in the Old Testament. But what do we make of it? What's the writer trying to say? Now remember why he's, this author is writing this letter. He's writing it to Jewish background followers of Jesus who were entering a time of great discrimination and even persecution. And they were barely hanging on to their faith. They were being tempted to give it up because it was just too hard. And what he's telling them is that, yes, sometimes faith produces great victories. But he's saying also sometimes faith is what allows us to hold on through times of suffering. That faith does not guarantee triumph in this life. Faith does not guarantee comfort or ease or health or opportunity. Faith is much deeper than that, he says. Faith is that which sustains, that holds on, even through suffering, especially through suffering. Now, like I said, I've never known this kind of suffering. None of us in this room have known this kind of suffering, not like those Russian elders did, not like what Hebrews 11 is telling us. But it does still continue in the present day. Did you know that in the past 100 years, more Christians have been martyred than in all the previous centuries combined? Did you know that in 2021, in one year, alone. Some 360 million Christians worldwide, or one in seven, suffered significant persecution for the faith. That's happening now. In 2021, some 6,000 Christians were killed, martyred for their faith in the world. That's an average of 16 every day for a whole year. So it's still happening. Places like Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, those are the top five in terms of mistreatment of followers of Jesus. Here's a question. Why do they suffer like that and we do not? Why? We don't have an answer to that. We don't know. But we do know there is something divinely ordained and glorious about those who've been called to suffer for Christ, those of whom the world is not worthy. When I read that phrase, I immediately think of a friend I met a couple years ago when I traveled in uh, Tanzania in Africa a man named Fred Wangwa, pastor of a small church there. Uh, pastor Fred was born in grinding poverty on the streets of Africa, uh, was working in fields by the time he was four and five years old just to have enough to eat. He eventually was adopted by a really small church outside of the city where he lives. 
They sent him to school. He became their pastor when he was 22. Since then, he has planted 10 more churches in the mountains around his city, trained all those pastors by himself, recently started the Muslim background church in his area under threat of violence from the local community. Pastor Fred will never write a book. He'll never have a podcast. The world will never know his name. And yet I believe he's one of those of whom the world is not worthy. So what about us? What are the lions and the swords and the testing that do we face? Do we face anything like that? Well, not like they did, but we do have our own struggles. The Bible says we have an enemy, and the enemy attacks us in much more subtle ways, in some ways much more dangerous ways. Because the enemy uses our affluence to tempt us into thinking we don't need God, we don't need prayer, we have enough. The enemy uses our comfort to make us complacent. So we care less about things that are important. We care much more about things that are trivial. Or maybe uh, the enemy attacks us through a culture that is um, attacking our faith at every turn these days. Things like, well, you you don't need to believe in God. Science is proving you don't need God. Or uh, that faith in the Bible is just an old fable. Uh, Truth is really in you. There's no absolute truth. There's just whatever you think truth is. Hebrews 11 is telling us, no, hang on to what is true. Hang on to faith. Just as all those have gone before, whether they conquered or whether they suffered, they hung on to faith because faith is that which helps us conquer. Faith is that which helps us hold on because God has promised. And what God has promised, he will do. And that is his promise to make our faith perfect. That leads us to the third point, faith that is made perfect. So faith that conquers, faith that suffers, faith that's made perfect. Verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, all these, all these we've looked at all summer, all these names, Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses, the whole list, all these, some of them knowing great victory, some of them suffering, all kinds of suffering, all these commended by faith, but none had received the promise. What does that mean? What promise were they missing? What promise did they not live to see? Well, in short, it was the promise of Messiah, the promise of one who would save The promise of a deliverer. Verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That that was one word for made perfect, and it means to be finished or complete. What the writer's telling us is is that the whole story arc of the Bible, the whole story arc from beginning to the end is about Jesus. From creation in the Garden of Eden to the story of Noah and the ark, to the Abrahamic covenant, to the Exodus and the Passover lamb, to all the prophets, all of it, all of these are claimed by faith because they believed God. They believed God had promised, but they did not see the promise fulfilled. But here's the thing, we have. We have seen the promise of Jesus. We've seen the incarnation of God. We've seen the promise of the cross. We've seen the empty tomb and the resurrection. We know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises, but even that promise has not been ultimately fulfilled. It's not finished. Now let me pause here, take a little theological side trip. Uh, stay with me. There are two very common mistakes in our minds, even as believers, as Christians, that we make. And they're very subtle, but they go like this. 
On the first, uh, the first mistake is living or thinking as if God has not done what he says he's already done. For example, people who say things like, well, God could never forgive me. The things I've done, he, he just could never forgive me. Or I, God's abandoned me. He's left me alone in this world. No. God's told he's already taken care of that. Jesus has already gone to the cross. Your sins are already forgiven. You can't be any more forgiven than you are right now. That's already been done. So don't live as if it's not been done. You're not alone. He's given us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. You're never alone. The second mistake is on the other side. That is to live or think like God has already done what he says he has not yet done. And for example, this would be, well, I must not have enough faith because... You know, I still struggle with sin sometimes. Or I must not have enough faith because God hasn't healed uh, my loved one who I prayed for. Or I still get sick. Well, no. God hasn't promised to heal all our diseases now. He sometimes does, but he hasn't promised that. He hasn't promised to fulfill all our wishes now. That's all still coming in the new heaven and new earth where there'll be no more sin, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. But that's not now. All the way through Hebrews 11, we've been, we've been reminded that there is a future home. This longing for the heavenly city, the author says. And we need to see that this happens in, 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 I don't know what the best way to say this, but two steps the New Testament tells us. It tells us clearly that those who die in faith are immediately with Christ in a spiritual realm. or immediately with him in the glorified presence of Christ. Paul makes that clear. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So your loved one, if they die, you when you die. Me, when I die, I'll be immediately with the Lord. But there's a second thing coming. Jesus promised to come again. And it's when he comes again that he will redeem all things, all of creation, give us our new spiritual bodies in which we will live and dwell with him and reign with him forever. That is yet to come. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. He's saying, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What he means is that we are all going to be made perfect together. Them, those ancient people, your loved ones who have gone ahead, me, all of us, on that day when Jesus returns, will be made perfect all together. So let me wrap it up. Most of you know, or some of you know, that my dad uh, died earlier this summer in June. and Many people sent really kind notes, and we appreciate that very much. But this past week, um, another man died, uh, a writer named Frederick Buechner, who my dad and I both uh, liked reading his stuff and shared books back and forth, and we actually got to meet him for lunch one time years ago in 1990. And when Frederick Buechner died, I was reminded of a quote, one of my favorite quotes from one of his books. It made me think of my dad. It made me think of a lot of things. I do a funeral this afternoon at 2 o'clock. Here's the quote. He's writing about the death of a saint and the promise of heaven. And listen to these words. What's lost is nothing to what's found. And all the death that ever was set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. What's lost is nothing to what's found. And all the death that ever was set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying that's true. It was true for the ancient heroes of the faith, flawed as they were. It was true when they experienced great victories. It was true when they experienced suffering. It's true for us today because God has promised. 
He made a promise to Abraham to bless the whole world through his descendants. And to those descendants, he gave the promise of a Messiah. The Messiah came in the person of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the promise of salvation by going to the cross. Jesus also promised to come again, to redeem all things. And that's the promise that has not yet been fulfilled. But it will be. And on that day, our faith, their faith, will be made perfect. Let me close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this 2,000-year-old letter written to people who were struggling to hang on to faith. Sometimes we also struggle, if we're honest. We feel weak. Sometimes we fail. We don't understand the suffering of the world. We don't understand sometimes even the suffering right around us or in us. So remind us today by your word that our faith is not in ourselves or the strength of our, our, our own faith, but it's in the strength of the power of our God and in the promises of God. So help us to trust fully in what you have already done and help us to trust fully in what you yet promise to do. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Receive now today's benediction. May we go now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, trusting by faith what he has already done and trusting by faith what he promises yet to do. Amen. Have a great day.